The American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2, An Introduction to Austrian Economics, Part 2. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, so welcome back. Um, now, the previous episode was part one of your introduction to Austrian economics, and today we're going to wrap that introduction up. Now, it might not be readily apparent as to exactly why this is important or why I'm doing this, but I think it helps to understand a lot of what we're going to be talking about if one has a grounding in economics, specifically the Austrian school. Today, we're going to discuss the Austrian business cycle theory and money. And who doesn't like talking about money? I mean, come on. I know you're excited, right? Okay, so without further ado, let's get started. All right, so it's normal for a business to close. Businesses, after all, come and go all the time. This is because it is impossible for us to know the future with any certainty. But when large numbers of businesses suffer losses or close the doors all at once, well, this should surprise us. Why is it that in a bust, so many businesses all at once fail. Now remember, the market weeds out the weak or those who are poor stewards of capital and forecasters of consumer demand. These folks are punished with losses and if they don't quickly get their house in order, they're going to go out of business. So why is it that suddenly well-established businesses, those who have proven they can pass the test of the market, suddenly all of them make the same errors as the rookies, so to speak? Now, Lionel Robbins, a British economist, refers to this as the cluster of errors, and it demands an answer. Quote, why should the leaders of business in various industries producing producers' goods make errors of judgment at the same time and in the same direction? End quote. Now, this is referred to as the business cycle. According to Karl Marx, this cycle of boom and bust is inherent to the market economy. Now, I'd say Marx is incorrect as are those who blame quote-unquote deregulation. First, if one looks at deeply at the history, these busts are especially severe in capital goods industries, for example, raw materials, construction, capital equipment, those sorts of things. Um, the consumer goods sector, however, suffers relatively light losses, comparatively speaking at least. The items that um, you, the consumer, purchase, they don't suffer from busts as much as do the things that are produced in the higher order stages of production. Now, in other words, Toothbrush makers don't suffer. The same goes for clothing manufacturers. You know, the things that you have to purchase. And you've got to buy a toothbrush every now and then. You've got to buy clothes. However, those things that are further removed from the consumer, the so-called higher order goods, those industries suffer. Now, why is that? Economist F.A. Hayek won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work on business cycle theory, sometimes referred to as the Austrian business cycle theory. Hayek's work builds on the work of economist Ludwig von Mises, and they believe or they found that the root cause of the problem is the central bank. It is the central bank, or what the United States calls the Federal Reserve, which is the cause. It can and often does expand or contract the supply of money in the economy. It influences interest rates up or down. It is the interference with interest rates that causes the boom. The Federal Reserve, for political reasons, cuts interest rates. Interest rates are a price, the price being charged to borrow money. When you save money and deposit it into a savings account, 
or you purchase a bond, you are the lender, and the interest rate that you earn is the price that you're being paid for money. Now, if more people or more families are saving money, or more banks are lending money, the price to borrow money drops. In other words, interest rates go down. If there is a rush to borrow money, or if there was a lack of loanable funds, then the interest rates go up. Money to borrow is in that scenario more expensive. So this is what happens in a free market. Banks have more money to loan because consumers are saving money. They're putting off purchases, so banks have more money and they can loan it out and charge lower interest rates for those loans. From the perspective of the business, low interest rates means consumers are putting off purchases, thus freeing up land, labor, and capital, which would normally be used to produce consumer goods or for use in the higher stages of production. Low interest rates means lower prices to borrow money and engage in long-term projects. Low prices for labor means it's cheaper to hire new employees to work on this new project. Low prices for land means it's cheaper to purchase the steel, the wood, and the other materials that are needed to complete this long-term project. Now, under a situation um, where interest rates are high, this sort of long-term project would not pay off. Just a little movement in the interest rate can have a huge effect. Uh, think of the interest rate on a home. Just a half a percentage point over a 30-year period can change the overall total that you're paying quite significantly. Now imagine you're talking millions of dollars or you know hundreds of millions of dollars, right? So business responds to these cheaper prices by taking the opportunity to engage in long-term projects. These are often aimed at increasing their productive capacity in the future, expanding existing factories or building new ones or perhaps purchasing new equipment. Uh, maybe they'll expand R&D or they'll take a project that was in the R&D phase and now they're going to move it into production, seeing as how it is now cheaper to build a factory and to equip it with the necessary capital goods. Now again, as Tom Woods notes, the way we express this happy arrangement is to say that interest rates coordinate production over time. Quote, it ensures a compatible mix of market forces. If people want to consume now, businesses respond accordingly. If people want to consume in the future, businesses allocate resources to satisfy the desire as well. End quote. If consumers prefer more existing goods right now, businesses are likely not to invest in the development of new products. Now, if I didn't make it clear, the interest rate performs a coordinating function. However, it can only do this if it's allowed to do so. Free market interest rates go down when the public saves more. However, if or when the Fed or the central bank arbitrarily lowers the interest rate, these rates no longer reflect the true state of consumer demand. Savings have not actually increased. Present consumption has also not decreased. This artificially lowered interest rate has misled the investors. They believe it would be profitable to make long-term decisions that, under normal conditions, would be seen as unprofitable. The Federal Reserve's policy of cheap credit has misled businesses into thinking that now is a good time to invest in those long-term projects that they've been planning. However, the public has not indicated that it was willing to postpone present consumption and free up the resources needed for businesses to complete those long-term projects. Remember back to Robinson Crusoe. If he is intent on consuming coconuts, he can't also invest in improving his future life. The same holds true for the economy. And the problem is these projects may not be able to even be finished. And even if they are, there's no reason to believe the needed purchasing power will be around to purchase the new product when business hopes to cash in 
on the long-term investments. In other words, the artificial lowering of the interest rate has created a situation in which there is a mismatch of market forces. The aforementioned coordination of production across time is now disrupted. Long-term investments that would and can only bear fruit in the distant future are being encouraged at a time when the public has shown it has no desire to save and, in fact, prefers to consume in the present. The consumers are not saving and freeing up resources for use in the higher stages of production. Actually, the artificially low interest rate has discouraged the people from saving and encouraged them to consume more at a time when investors are looking to invest more in resources. Now, as the company or companies work towards completing these projects, they'll discover that the resources they needed, the labor, the materials, replacement parts, known as complementary factors of production, all of these things are not available in sufficient quantities, at least not in the prices they were expecting. The reality of the situation sinks in. Projects cannot be completed. In other words, the economy can only support so many long-term projects all at once. The interest rate not only acts as a green light, red light mechanism, it is a restraint on starting too many such projects all at once. If the interest rate were functioning normally, as more and more money would be bought, was borrowed to start these long-term projects, the interest rate would naturally increase. That would act as a break on businesses from starting too many such projects. But because the central bank is not allowing the interest rates to naturally increase, that break has been removed. Now, Mises gives us an analogy between an economy under the influence of artificially low interest rates and a home builder who has falsely believed that he has more resources, perhaps bricks, than he really does. He'll begin building a house, which is larger than the one he would have chosen had the free market been allowed to operate. This builder will not be able to complete this larger home with the number of bricks he has available to him. The sooner he realizes this, the better, for he can then adjust his production plants before too much of the finished home is produced and too much of his labor and material resources have been wasted. However, if he finds out too late, he will end up needing to destroy most of the new house, and he and society will be all the poorer. The short-term results of the artificially lowered interest rates appears to be a boom. Think of how things felt in, say, 2003, or maybe 1927. The value of stocks and real estate shoots up. Businesses expand. People enjoy a higher standard of living. But the economy is on steroids, or perhaps you could say on a sugar high. Reality must, inevitably, set in. Some of the investments prove to be unsustainable and must be abandoned, the resources that were diverted to them having been partly or wholly wasted. The bust has set in. However, the seeds for the bust were planted in the boom, the boom that the Federal Reserve or the Central Bank encouraged. Hayek, writing in the Great Depression, scolded those who believed um, that it was possible to inflate your way out of the disaster and to continue to push down interest rates forever. Quote, Instead of furthering the inevitable liquidation of the maladjustments brought about by the boom during the last three years, all conceivable means have been used to prevent that readjustment from taking place. And one of these means, which has been repeatedly tried, though without success, from the earliest to the most recent stages of depression, has been this deliberate policy of credit expansion. To combat the depression by a forced credit expansion is to attempt to cure the evil by the very means which brought it about. Because we are suffering from a misdirection of production, we want to create further misdirection. A procedure can only lead to a much more severe crisis as soon as the credit expansion comes to an end. It is probably to this experiment, 
together with the attempts to prevent liquidation once the crisis has come, that we owe the exceptional severity and duration of the Depression, end quote. Now, part of the problem is that we misunderstand the necessity of the bust. The bust, as I used to say when I taught economics, is like what happens to someone when they consume too much alcohol. You drink too much of that stuff and you end up throwing up. Your body is trying to expel the poison, so to speak. The same is happening in the bust. The economy is attempting to shake off the malinvestment and the capital misallocation. It is trying to reestablish the structure of production along sustainable lines and restore the economy to health. And we can see that the Austrian business cycle theory answers our two main questions. Number one, the cluster of errors occurs because of the artificially lowered interest rates. The downturn is worse in the producer goods industries than in consumer goods industries because that sector is the most sensitive to interest rate changes and therefore it disproportionately attracts investments. Now before we get to the end, I just want to summarize. There are only two ways interest rates can come down. Naturally, because the public is saving more or artificially by the actions of the central bank. Businessmen respond to lower interest rates by starting new projects. This is number two, by the way. The projects tend to be those that are the most interest uh, rate sensitive, in particular, the higher order stages of production. Number three, if the interest rate is lowered due to natural causes, then the market works smoothly. Number four, if the interest rate is lower because of artificial causes, then these projects cannot all be completed. Number five, imagine a home builder believes that he's got X number of bricks, but in reality, he has 20% less. Well, he'd build a different sort of home than he would have if he was aware of the fact that he doesn't have as many bricks as he thinks he does. The dimensions, the style, all of that, that would be different. Number six, the economy is like the home builder. Forcing interest rates lower than the free market would have set them makes economic actors act as if more saved resources exist than actually do. Some portion of the new investment is malinvestment, investment in lines that would have made sense if the saved resources existed to sustain and complete them, but which do not make sense in light of current resource availability. The housing boom is a classic example of this theory in action. Artificially low interest rates misdirect enormous amounts of resources into home construction. We now know that was not sustainable. There are only so many million dollar homes the public, which wasn't saving, is or was in a position to purchase. And number eight, the sooner the monetary manipulation comes to an end, the sooner the malinvestment can be shaken out and the misallocated resources redirected into sustainable lines. The longer we try to prop things up, the worse the bust will be. Now remember the example of the home builder. He would have been better off if he discovered the reality of the situation sooner. The same goes for the economy as a whole. All right, now let's talk about money. There are several benefits to using money. The old axiom, money is the root of all evil, notwithstanding. First, without money, there could be no real specialization in the economy. In fact, as economist Murray Rothbard noted, society would not be able to advance, quote, above a bare primitive level, end quote. Further, the problems that plagued barter societies, specifically the problem of indivisibility and coincidence of wants, all disappear when a society uses money. Think about it. If you're a lumberjack, you would cut down trees to sell. How would you divide the logs up? How do you know that I, a cow farmer, need logs? The problem of divisibility and the coincidence of wants becomes obvious. However, if a society can decide on a medium of exchange, say gold, then these problems vanish. Gold is easily divisible, and while I may not need it for anything, 
because everyone in society accepts it as a medium of exchange, I accept it. As a matter of fact, while economics textbooks often point out the fact that money has several functions, they are all corollaries of its one great function. It acts as a medium of exchange. Now Rothbard points out another benefit. Because all exchanges are conducted in money, all exchange ratios are now expressed in that currency. People can now compare the market value to one good to another good. What he means by this is, if an iPhone exchanges for 3 ounces of gold, a car for 60 ounces of gold, then everyone understands that the car is worth about 20 iPhones. The money is the common denominator for all prices. Quote, only the establishment of money prices on the market allows the development of a civilized economy, for only they permit businessmen to calculate economically, end quote. In other words, thanks to money, business can now figure out how well they are doing when it comes to satisfying consumer demands by comparing their prices to those being charged by other businesses for the same items. They can now calculate profit and loss. Now let's discuss the monetary unit and the mon money stock or money supply. First, the size of the unit that is decided upon makes no difference to an economist. What I mean is that England might prefer to reckon in grains or ounces. All weights are convertible to one another. Uh, one pound equals 16 ounces. One ounce equals 437.5 grains or 28.35 grams. doesn't matter. Okay, it's, it's all convertible. So let's say the money item, uh, monetary item chosen is gold. It makes no difference if you sell a coat for one ounce in America or 28.35 grams in France. The prices are the same. Now, now, why am I belaboring this? Well, I think a lot of misconceptions, and perhaps even misery, could be avoided just by understanding these simple truths. Even when countries were, quote, on the gold standard, end quote, people thought in terms of dollars or francs. But these names were simply names for units of gold or silver. There's nothing magical about the name dollar or franc or pound. Yes, originally the British pound um, was a weight of silver, a pound weight of silver. The dollar originally was an ounce of silver coined by a bohemian count named Schlick in the 16th century. If we look back to the time when the United States was on the gold standard, we see that the dollar was defined as the name for one twentieth an ounce of gold. The pound sterling was, at the time, one quarter an ounce of gold, or five-twentieths an ounce of gold. So what I'm getting at, perhaps in a roundabout way, is that on the free market, none of this matters. The shape of the money, the name, none of that's important. What is important is that a medium is agreed upon. The name, who cares? The shape, same thing, who cares? How about supply? Well, that's a different story. Unlike other goods, increasing supply of money does not confer a social benefit. Think back to about 10 years ago when HD um, LED TVs were more scarce than they are today. At that point, they were not only far more scarce, but they were far more expensive. As production methods increased, the number of HD TVs available also increased. And what happened to the price? Well, it dropped, and society benefited. However, does the same hold true for money? No. We often think that having more money is what makes a society rich. But the reality is that what makes a society wealthy is an abundance of goods, and what limits that abundance is a scarcity of resources. If the Tooth Fairy shows up tonight and doubles the money supply, would uh, all of us be twice as rich? Of course not. All that has happened is that we've diluted the money supply. Again, referring to Rothbard, quote, The public at large is not made richer. New money only raises prices, i.e., dilutes its own purchasing power, end quote.
Sure, in the immediate aftermath, it might feel good, especially if you're one of the first to get to the store or to jump on Amazon.com, but prices will rapidly adjust to meet the new demand. Now, why is this? Well, remember, unlike other goods, such as TVs or iPhones, money is only useful for its exchange value. Um, this part is important, so I'm going to repeat it. Money is only useful for its exchange value. Other goods have real utility, so if their supply is increased, more consumer wants are satisfied. Money is only good for exchange. Its utility is in acting as a medium of exchange, or in its purchasing power. Thus, an increase in the supply of money only dilutes the effectiveness of the monetary unit, which is in this case an ounce of gold. However, a fall in the supply of money raises the power of each gold ounce to do its job. So you see, there is a startling truth staring us right in the face. It doesn't matter what the supply of money is. Any supply will do as well as any other. The market will simply adjust by changing the purchasing power of each individual unit of that money. Okay, one more thing about money. And here we're talking about a situation where either gold or silver is the medium of exchange. Although I suppose uh, it would work in a fiat currency environment like we currently have. What happens if someone or many people start hoarding money? Let's say someone is hoarding their gold, saving it up in a bank or even just stuffing it under their mattress, whatever. Assuming there's enough of this happening, the result would be as follows. The prices of goods fall. The purchasing power of the gold ounce or the gold unit, whatever, the monetary unit, would necessarily increase. There is no loss to society. It just carries on with prices of goods and services adjusting. And finally, and I promise this is it, I'll stop torturing you, uh, we have the question of stable prices. Should government intervene in the system that we've described in order to keep prices stable? Uh, there were those, and maybe there still are those, who believe the money, uh, that money is supposed to be a fixed yardstick that never changes. Artificial stabilization will, in fact, seriously distort the functions of the free market. Further, increases in productivity cause prices to fall, and thus distribute the fruit of the free market to all members of the public. Think of the personal computer. In the 1980s, they were expensive and far rarer than they are today. However, thanks to increased productivity, the price fell, and now they're everywhere. Actually, they've been replaced by tablets, laptops, and smartphones, all of which are far more powerful and far less expensive, even counting for inflation, or especially when counting for inflation. Forcibly propping up the price level prevents this spread of higher living standards. In short, money is not a fixed yardstick. It's a commodity that serves as a medium of exchange. It must have flexibility and value so that it can respond to consumer demand. So, stability is not the goal. The goal is to allow the supply and demand to work their magic. Okay, so there's your primer on economics, and specifically on Austrian business cycle theory and Austrian economics. Now in our next episode, which we'll release um, tomorrow, we will discuss the railroads and the Gilded Age. Until next time, have a great day. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.